this morning, I want to jump right in. Not a whole lot by way of introduction, simply because there's a, a ton for us to get th- through, even though there's only four verses, because we need to look at Jonah's rage at God's mercy. So if you have your place in Jonah 4, as is our habit, would you stand? Because that's our habit here in honor of God's word. I'm only reading four verses. Jonah 4, 1 to 4. Hear this as God's word. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come, we ask that you would open our hearts, that, Father, you would uh, extend to us the grace uh, of of God in Jesus, uh, that you would extend that to us even during this time, that, Jesus, you would lay claim on our hearts as the giver of mercy, the sovereign one who extends that and gives that uh, to us. Would you give that? In spirit, would you come and, and make us willing and able receivers of that mercy. Jesus, what you have to say to us this morning is far more important than anything I have to say. So let everything that you have done, your life, your death, your resurrection, uh, let it all come to the forefront and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. Your words are the words of eternal life. So we ask that you would speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So we're in week five. Next week's our last week in Jonah. And then the following week is the beginning of Advent. Um, Advent is a, a period of four weeks before uh, Christmas, the, the four Sundays before Christmas in which we're intentionally leaning in and longing for the coming of Jesus, not just his first coming, but his second coming. So as we're coming to the end of this book, I want to just impress this. This book is really about one thing. How will longtime believers, of which Jonah is our example, how will longtime believers respond to the gospel. That sounds a little funny, right? Because for many of us, we're like, I, I mean, we're here every week. Rick, you, you are dogged about the gospel every week. And that is true. Uh, but that's the point. Um, my, my, I got a flu shot a week before last, my first ever flu shot, right? Uh, first time I ever gotten it. My doctor guilted me into it. Um, he's, he's a member of our, our, uh, parent church in, in Tabernacle, and he is very able to use guilt as a motivator. He guilted me into it by telling me that it was for you. So I did this for you, all right? Um, because I could be a carrier and inflict all of you with a plague. Uh, so I got a flu shot. You know how flu shots work, right? You, you get injected with a weakened form of the virus, um, and your body is able to crush it, destroy it, demolish it, because it's weak. And then after that, you have antibodies that are built up for when the next little bugger gets in there and you'll, you'll be able to destroy it, right? You're inoculated. It's no longer a problem for you. In the same way, we can become inoculated to the gospel really easily. Like being inoculated to the flu, we can't see it when it happens, but it's just as effective because we begin slowly. And this is a danger. If, you've, if you um, grew up in the church... If you're a kid here in, this, in, in, in worship with us this morning, and there's a bunch of you in here, um, and there's going to be a bunch more, 
Dan prayed for the children. This is totally off script. But you know that in 2017, Holy Cross had 12 babies born between both congregations. Uh, it's, a, it's a bunch. So anyway, if you're, but if you're a kid in this church, this is a particular danger for you. Because you come someplace almost every Sunday, if not every Sunday, where you hear the gospel talked about. Your parents probably talk to you about Jesus all the time. It's normal. And because it's normal, it might seem a little less amazing. Over time, when we've, when we've been in the church, we begin slowly, not all at once, but we begin thinking that our brokenness really isn't as bad as we once thought. It, you know, I mean, we're making good progress. It's manageable. We start looking towards those not as mature as we are in the faith. And we think, they could really use my guidance. I have a lot to offer them. I can offer them all of my good, the stuff that I've come up with. It's really great how I've grown. And, and if they do it the way I do it, they would probably be better off for it. We start classifying our neighbors and our coworkers into categories like savable and not savable. Now, look, I know you would never use those words, right? Your theology is too good. But how do you view them? Are they too far from God? Suddenly the gospel that we hear no longer makes an impact on us. We aren't amazed that God would rescue us. We get bored by the work of Jesus. But then, if God is gracious to us, he exposes our arrogance. For some of us that happens because of a public fall. Our stuff is laid bare to the world. It's painful and merciful. Because suddenly we're not able to keep in all that stuff that's been inside and we we can't keep the facade up anymore. Sometimes that happens because we have to wrestle with God who has shown grace to people that we know don't deserve it like we do. Is this you? Would you even know? Would you even know if that's you? You see, that's what we see in Jonah today. And it is a danger for all of us who have been Christians for any amount of time. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, good news. You get to listen in this morning. All right, you get to listen in and hear, uh, hear, hear about how Christians blow it. Uh, and see that God is way better than we've probably presented him. Okay? So we're going to look at this in two ways this morning. Uh, the, the outlines in your bulletin, if that's helpful. We're going to look at how Jonah's revealed. Then we're going to look at how God is revealed. And then in the midst of it, we'll see how it reveals us too. Okay? So first Jonah, then God. So let's, let, let's remember where we left off. We left off last week, right? Jonah had gone into the city of Nineveh. He had given the worst gospel presentation ever, right? 40 days and God's going to get you. And all of Nineveh repented. It wasn't perfect repentance. It wasn't full repentance. It wasn't a revival. It was, they said, okay, I... We did this, let's stop doing this, and maybe if we stop doing this, God will be merciful. And in fact, he was. Now, we need to, we need to let this sink in on us, because I, I've been doing this now for over a decade, this pastor thing. And I've talked with many of you, I've talked with folks in the church, I've talked with folks out of the church, non-Christians, Christians alike. And here's what I've generally seen. That we have a view of God that says that God is more or less... Uh, looking for a reason to judge us. 
right? We don't say that, especially if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian a long time. You don't say that because you know that's not proper theology, but that's the way we look at him. We think of him as someone who begrudgingly kind of got fooled into accepting us because Jesus stood in the way and all of a sudden he's like, ah, now there's Jesus there. I can't get him anymore until hopefully, or until one day he's hoping when we'll just kind of Blow it just enough to move just far enough outside of Jesus and he can, ah, he gets squishes with his thumb. That is probably due, frankly, to too high a view of ourselves, right? Because that assumes that our failures, our betrayals of God are rare and we can manage them and keep them in line. And we can't. They're constant. What this book shows us instead of that is a God who's looking for opportunities not to judge but to show mercy. Looking for opportunities. And now we get to see how Jonah responds to that. And his response reveals a ton about him. Look down at verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Now, we can't see it in our English translations because the words don't quite work out to what we would understand. But if you were to read that in the, in the original, what you'd see is a wonderful little wordplay going on. Or maybe some of you will remember way back in the first verse or the second verse of this, of this little book. That God called Jonah to go to Nineveh because the, the evil of the Ninevites had risen to, uh, risen to him and he was going to judge. He was angry about it. That word evil is the same word that we get here that we translate displeased. And so what it means is that literally it says that Jonah eviled a big evil, a great evil. And he was angry about it. Jonah has suddenly taken the place of God. He has evil thoughts about about the, the grace, the mercy of God. And he's placed himself in God's position by being angry about it. He is angry because of God's mercy. God had mercy on Nineveh. Had mercy on a people that he didn't think deserved it. And he's angry. Exceedingly angry. But let's continue though in the refusal to change. Look down at verses 2 to 3. And it it says first, and he prayed. Now stop there really quick. Do you realize in the book, this is only the second time Jonas prayed. And the first time doesn't count because he was really praying to himself. This is the second, this, so this is the first time Jonah's prayed. We actually get to see Jonah's heart come out. Now he's not telling God how awesome Jonah is. Now he's honestly engaging with God. And he says this. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Now stop there. Here it is. Finally, in chapter 4, we found out why it is that Jonah ran from God's call, ran from God's presence. He was afraid that God would have mercy on people. It's like, I know who you are. I get it. This is what I was afraid of. You're a God of mercy. They don't deserve it. I'm not going to go talk to them because you might get some crazy ideas. That's why I ran. And then he concludes with the most ridiculous statement ever. In verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I wish I could give you some way to understand that that doesn't, that's not what it says. 
This dude is having what can only be described as a colossal temper tantrum. Right? This is a kid in the corner holding their breath till they turn blue. This is uh, stomping off, crossing their arms and puffing out their... And trying to get... I'm so angry at what you did. Just kill me. Here's why this is so crazy. Over and over and over again in this book, God has had exceeding amounts of mercy on Jonah. We talked about that last week, right? Jonah's the only prophet in the entire Old Testament who gets a second chance. Right? That the other prophet, there, there are other prophets, other examples of prophets in the Old Testament, only a couple, but that's, that's enough for us to know that when they didn't do as God asked them to do, judgment comes swiftly. Because to whom much is given, much is required, right? And if you get to hear the voice of God, you don't get to go, yeah, I don't know, I don't think so. You know, so Jonah is the only prophet in the Old Testament who has shown mercy, gets a second chance. God showed him mercy in saving him from the ocean. He wants to run from God so far, he's like, just, hey, sailors, kill me. That'll stop this whole thing. And you know what? Then I won't have to go to Nineveh. God saves him. He shows him mercy. And he shows him mercy in continually pursuing him. And Jonah has been untouched by all of it. He's inoculated. Can you relate? I know that you wouldn't publicly say it. Right? None of us would say, oh yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, I'm there. I hate, I hate when God shows mercy to people. We would never say that. But can you relate? Because you see, this story of Jonah is not a silly history meant to inform us about a prophet. It's meant to reveal us. This is meant to speak to... Like, who cares, right? What happened to Nineveh? Do you? Do I? This is my job. I don't really care, right? What I care about is who is this God and how does he deal with, with me and with you? Like, this is about us. Jonah is mad because God didn't give the Ninevites what he thinks they deserve. And so it reveals us. He, he's fallen into the camp that many of us do, that God is basically a Coke machine, right? You put in your quarter, you press your button, you get your blessing. That's how I interact with God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my thing. I'm going to put my quarter in. I get press the button because I don't want that one. I want this one. And I get my blessing, right? Isn't that how God works? Now, for some of us, that quarter is our obedience. That's our slaving for him, like the parable that, that Brandon read. Haven't I slaved for you these many years? We do the right things keep our nose clean, have our quiet time, make responsible choices. We do our part, and he's he's supposed to do his, right? But But then we don't get what we're hoping for. And when we don't get what we hope for, what we assume is, I know, the problem's me. I didn't obey enough. I didn't obey correctly. We go into shame mode until... We glance over there and we go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Because that dude just got what I, I'm better than him. Hold on. How come he gets what I want and you don't give me what I want and I've been slaving. I deserve better. 
I deserve. Some of us aren't wired that way, though. For us, that anger comes because we see people maybe uh, become Christians from uh, uh, um, a more notorious life, right? Like we, maybe you were raised in the church or, or you just kind of always kind of been the, the kind of person who keeps their nose really clean and you see these other people come from backgrounds which you would look and go, wow, like that's dramatic. It wasn't the dimmer switch thing that many of our kids have, which is great, by the way. Like we, I want that for our, all of our kids at Holy Cross where they've never known a day where they don't know Jesus. Like they can't remember Instead, they're coming in and it's a dramatic reversal of their life, but they seem to enjoy a kind of freedom about them, right? You've noticed that, right? They enjoy a freedom. Like, they're not neurotic about whether or not they read the right Bible verses or they pray enough. They're not neurotic about it. They seem to enjoy this fact that God is gracious to them. And we go, wait a minute. I want that. I should have that. I deserve that. We get angry like that elder brother in the parable. We've done everything right, but they seem to enjoy the freedom that we long for. They get the goods, we get the shaft. We deserve better. See, that's the key. What we deserve. That's the key. So let me ask you something. What do you think God owes you? Don't give me the right answer. Look, this is a PCA church. I get it. Y'all got your theology straight. But what do you really think God owes you? Is it a good marriage? Right? Mm, Here we go. You did all the right things as a Christian teenager? Right? You didn't drink. You didn't chew. You didn't date the ones that do. You... You listen to that whole youth group mumbo jumbo about the rose and who's touching the rose and all that garbage. Who would want this rose? You know, that kind of, if you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. That's awesome. If you do know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, hey, God says sexuality is for marriage. I'm keeping it that way. You, you, you struggled with it, but you kept it there. And then you got into marriage and nothing works. Doesn't work. And I don't just mean I don't just mean in the bedroom. I mean nothing works. You can't you you don't you don't fight well. You you guys are in you've read the books though. Oh, I read those books. I read Keller and I read Allender and I read all these other people. Like I read the books. And it's not right. And then you see other people who came from a completely messed up background. They come in, they're they're they were Lord knows how they ended up together, and they ended up together, and then they enjoy a good marriage, and you go. What? I did it right. I got the shaft. You think God owes you perfect kids? Right? Like you, you, you've read the books. You've gone to the conferences. You do family devotions. You're one of like three people in the world. And you do family devotions. And you do them consistently. And the only way you can actually accomplish them, however, is by strapping your children down and stuffing something in their mouths so they don't talk the whole time. Right? But then you look at other parents who don't do any of that. They've never read a book. They don't do anything. And their kids are passionately pursuing Jesus. And you go, 
What do you deserve? Does God owe you a better financial situation? You've always tithed. You've done the Dave Ramsey thing. Again, you're one of three people in the world who actually did the Dave Ramsey thing, and yet you can't ever get ahead. You can't, it's always just enough. And you look at people and they make irresponsible choices all the time. They don't even know how to spell the word budget, and they always land on their feet. And you go, why am I even doing this? Now listen, I know you would never use the words, what what does God owe me? I know you wouldn't. Your theology is too good. But that's what's in your heart. When you see that person who hasn't done it right, and they get the robe, and they get the ring, and they get the new sandals, and they get the party with pops, and you're sitting out in the field, and you're grumbling and angry about it, it's I deserve. But here's the thing. You see all that that is given to him? Or that person, fill in the blank. You were given those things. See, that's the crazy thing about Jonah in this passage. It isn't that he hasn't received mercy. He's gotten way more mercy than the Ninevites. But he can't see it. He's inoculated to it. See, he thinks his sin isn't as bad as theirs. That his turning away from God, his running away from God. Not as bad as theirs. I deserve better. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like them. So when we get angry at what others have gotten, whether that is grace or blessings or whatever, we also close our eyes to what we have gotten. And we assume that what we have isn't because of grace and mercy, it's because of our own awesomeness. We're inoculated. So this reveals Jonah and us, but it also reveals God. Look at what Jonah says. He begins his prayer, O Lord. Now, I've mentioned this a million times. Some of you all are probably sick and tired of Rick talking about this as a name. Why do we have to keep going over this? Because it's a major point in this book. Every time Jonah interacts with God, he calls him Lord. He calls him Yahweh. Lord is our way. Lord in caps is our way of translating uh, Yahweh. And every time that the, those who don't know God interact with God, whether that's sailors or the captain or the Ninevites, they call him God, which is a generic version of the word, uh, you know, obviously God. This name is important. Jonah uses God's covenant name. But our, see, that's important because our problem as humans is not that we're not good enough. It's not a, our problem is not a moral issue. I mean, it's also a moral issue. Our problem is that we have betrayed God, we have turned away from Him, and we are alienated from Him by our own choosing. In the beginning, we were not like that, but we came to doubt God's good heart, and we turned away from Him. We sought another path because we thought we could and should be independent of Him. He did nothing but love us, and we betrayed Him. And ever since then, every person born, save one, named Jesus, that, we'll get to that in a second. Every person born has been born under a state of guilt, for betrayal, brokenness, like we can't, we can't uh, fix ourselves, and we've been alienated from God looking for something else to satisfy us. That is what the Bible calls sin. It's a state, not an act. It's a state that results in an act. A way of being that results in a way of doing. Does that make sense? 
So that is what we've been born into by nature. The, the judgment of God is something we've earned by nature, not to mention what we've actually done. But God promised to deal with our sin. He made a covenant. He made a promise-bound relationship. And the, the whole of the Old Testament is God working out that promise. He takes this dude from a city called Ur, named Abraham, who's worshiping false gods. Not a good guy. And he goes and he rescues him. He says, you're now mine, and I'm going to save the world through your family. And the whole of the Old Testament is God working out that promise in the midst of a broken people. Broken just like everybody else. But he's going to work it out to, to rescue the world. Which means that that name, the Lord, is a name of grace. It's a name that communicates God's intention to deal with the sin of humanity, not just of Abraham's family. Jonah calling God by this name as he struggles with God showing mercy to Nineveh is important because this name explains why God would show mercy. Because he's made promises. It's a name that reminds us of God's grace in the midst of our extreme unworthiness. That's not all Jonah reveals about God. That's important for us to know. But then he goes on, right? Let's look at that now. He says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, I want to break this down, but let's make sure we get the impact of this. Like I said before, Jonah is saying, This is why I didn't go to Nineveh. Because I knew who you were. I knew what you're like. And I can't deal with that. You might actually spare them. I'm going to think about that for a second. That's the heart of our prophet here. And then Jonah goes on to declare perfect orthodox theology. This is something right here that Jonah did not make up. Jonah did not make this up. That God is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. He actually got that from the book of Exodus. And I know all of you are super familiar with Exodus. So though I know you don't need me to. I'm going to recount the story real quick. Uh, God, God calls Moses to, to go into Egypt to rescue his people from slavery. They come through the, the, the uh, Red Sea. They're traveling in the wilderness. They head to a mountain called Sinai. And, and Moses goes up on Sinai, he's there for 40 days. And while he's there, he's talking with God. God's writing, writing the Ten Commandments out, amongst some other things. This covenant pact that he's making with his people. Moses comes down the mountain. But while he was gone, while he was gone, the Israelites came up with a funky idea. Because they said, you know what, I don't, where, where's Moses? What do we do? We need our gods. And so they thought, I know what my God looks like. A cow. Now, I don't know if that's because they never seen a cow. Some of y'all own cows, right? When you see a cow, do you think God? Because I don't. I think, ugh. But anyway, so, so they, they make these golden calves. And when Moses comes down the mountain, they're the calves. Moses is so angry, he shatters the tablets, the, the covenant of God. He shatters them. And he's, God's like, I'm going to get them. And Moses like stands in the gap. And he's like, you know... He's a mediator, a picture of Jesus for them in that moment and for us, of someone standing between God's wrath and the people who deserve it. And then God recommits himself to this covenant and Moses gets new tablets and as he's doing, he says, show me your glory. And God passes before him and he tells him his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate and gracious, 
right? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, and a little more. God declares his name to Moses and declares these character traits. So let me walk through these traits for a second. First, he is gracious and merciful. The word grace in the Bible does not mean the prayer you say before dinner, and it does not speak to the elegance of a dancer, right? It is favor given to those who deserve displeasure, right? We, you know, if you kind of, uh, if church has been something you've been in for a while, you, you know it is unmerited favor, but I think sometimes it's even better to say uh, favor given to those who deserve displeasure, Someone who deserves anger gets favor instead, right? Merciful is actually a word uh, that, that speaks to God's material concern for us. It's a word actually that speaks very much to mothering uh, in, in, the, in the original. It speaks to God's material concern and compassion on us. To say he's gracious and merciful at the same time means that he gives that favor, which includes material concern and compassion to those who don't deserve it. Then he calls him slow to anger. Now that's self-explanatory, right? Slow to anger. Shouldn't need a ton of explanation, except that none of us believe that. Right? Most of us think that God is quick to anger, that he's looking for a reason to be angry, that his ego is easily bruised, and he's a capricious deity who throws lightning bolts at people. This is the opposite of that. God does not have a short fuse. The Bible presents him as very slow to anger. But then he is abounding in steadfast love. Now that phrase is all over the place in the Old Testament. And it means covenant faithfulness, which is, again, not helpful. So let me explain. It speaks to how God keeps his promises unconditionally. And that is huge because you and I don't keep our promises at all. So when I do a wedding, and I've done a few for folks, let me see, I can't think if there's anyone in here that I've done one for, but there were several at East. So uh, when I do a wedding, I often speak to the bride and groom as we're doing premarital counseling. I say it in the ceremony that the promises they are about to make, the vows they make, are unilateral and unconditional. Unilateral and unconditional, meaning that their promises do not depend on the worthiness of the one they are promising it to. If it did, that would be a contract, right? Some of you are all involved in business, you know how contracts work. I do this, you do this. If you don't do this, contract broken, I don't do this anymore. It's bilateral. But a covenant isn't like that. It's unilateral. I do this because I said I would. God is the great covenant keeper. His promises are based on him, not us. And he abounds in this unilateral and unconditional promise-keeping love. And then finally, Jonah tells us he relents from disaster. And that's what we talked about last week. That God is a God who's looking for opportunities to show mercy, not opportunities to judge. Not opportunities to destroy. You know, and we, and we want to paint God as a tyrant who eagerly shoots people with lightning bolts. And, and let, me, let me give you a possible reason for this. I think we like to do that because psychologically that makes it easier for us to disregard him. Think with me. How easy is it to disregard mean people? As a matter of fact, how easy is it for you to just kind of dehumanize them and think, you kind of sum them up as, as their monsterness? But it's really difficult to be flippant towards kind people. If God is a monster, you don't have to pay attention to him. He's a monster. But if he's kind, 
he's generous, if he's steadfast in his love, man, it's really hard to just ignore him. Now, let me point out the obvious here. Jonah has great theology. And it does nothing for him. Look, we are in a PCA church. And if, you're not, if you don't even know what that even means, you're kind of visiting with us and you're like, PCA, what, what is that? I thought it was Holy Cross. It is. But in our denomination, our tradition, we generally pride ourselves on very careful thinking about the things of God. We are very precise. We have a, we're a confessional church. We have this confession called the Westminster Confession, written by, by all accounts. If you read it, you're like, lawyers wrote this, right? Like, it's very precise. Like, it means this and not this, okay? We love good theology. Jonah's good theology does nothing for him. In our tradition, it's very easy to confuse good theology with spiritual maturity, Do not confuse them. Good theology could be a sign that you love the Lord and you want to know him more. Or it could be a sign that you love attention and love people thinking that you know the answers. Good theology is not necessarily a sign of spiritual maturity. If your theology, listen to me, If your theology does not lead you towards God in worship and lead you with God in mission, it is useless. If it does not lead you towards God in worship and, and, not or, towards God in worship and with God in mission, useless. Paul would call it a resounding gong. I have great theology and no love. It's like a resounding gong. Maybe more than useless. Maybe like Jonah, it's dangerous. It's inoculated him. Now, let me speak to a corrective vision. Because if you're here this morning and you've been inoculated, let's let God's question of Jonah speak to you. He says, do you do, you do well, Jonah, to be angry? Now, it's important Jonah didn't answer this question. Jonah does not respond to God. <laughs> he just tells God stuff. What Jonah declares here is what is true of God. Do you believe that that's true of God? Or do you have a little arrangement going with him? I'm going to do this, you're going to do this. You give him some outward obedience and he pays you in blessing. If that is the case, let me ask you something. Why did Jesus come? If if all God needed you to do was to do a little token obedience so that you could get your blessing, why did Jesus come? Because everything that Jonah says about God points ahead of itself to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made to deal with our sin. He is the evidence of God's grace and mercy. Because not only did he come and live for us, to live to give us a perfect record, but he died for us. So that we might have everything we need. He is the evidence of the slowness of God to anger and his relenting from disaster. Because God provided a means of forgiveness in the midst of our rebellion. And he is the place where God's grace and justice kiss. Because you see what Jonah left out in Exodus 34. The very next phrase. 
is that God will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. Interesting that Jonah left that out. Seems to be what he wanted more than anything else. And it's in Jesus that those two things that seem so disparate, slow to anger, relenting from disaster, but not letting the guilty go unpunished, how do those come together? They kiss on the cross. Because there, God relents from disaster for you and me by letting Jesus take the punishment of the guilty. The guilty don't go unpunished because of Jesus. He takes our place so that we could take his place as a beloved child of God. So listen to me really clearly because we need to get this. This passage actually speaks to several things that we need to hear in this place. First off, Jonah is angry Because what he sees the Ninevites getting isn't fair. Right? This passage shows us that God gives to everybody exactly what they need. And that is the definition of fair. Not everyone getting the same thing. Everyone getting what they need. Because what I need is different than you. What the Ninevites needed is different than what Jonah needed. What Jonah needed was different from the Ninevites. He didn't throw the Ninevites in a a fish. Because what Jonah needed was different. See, the problem is, we end up looking at other people's successes, their security, their blessings, their relationship, their power, and we wonder, why not me? Why don't I get that? What we never seem to look at is their struggles, their worries, their inner life, their wounds, and think, why not me? It never crosses our mind that perhaps God doesn't give us riches because it would draw us away from Him. Or that He gives us difficult circumstances because those, pla- those rough edges in us that aren't like Jesus need to be sanded off for us to flourish. And those circumstances are meant to be a refining tool. We don't think about that because we don't want to be more like Him. We don't want him. We want his stuff. We want his stuff. All of Jonah's circumstances were meant to draw him closer to God, but he consistently pushes away because he doesn't like the God who's pursuing him. So what would it be like for you to take a step back from your circumstances and ask yourself the question, how might God be working to make me more like him in all of this? All the while keeping something in mind. That God is gracious and compassionate. That he is abounding in steadfast love. That he does relent from disaster. Not that you make him that. He is that. Second, if you're wondering if you're in this place of Jonah, inoculated to the gospel, let me give you a couple diagnostics. First, are there people that I believe are too far from God for him to work in their lives? You know, people like racists, addicts, atheists, Republicans, Democrats. Too far from God for him to be able to work in their lives. Do you have those categories? And if so... What makes you more savable than them? Just be honest. 
What is it? Because if you, if you have a category in which you are more savable than someone else, you've probably become inoculated to the gospel. Second, <laughs> uh, this will step on some toes. Do you struggle sharing your faith with people because what you believe isn't that good? Now, I don't mean struggle sharing your faith because you, you struggle with the words. If you struggle with the words, we've got little booklets in the back there called The Story. I invite you to take them. Use those. It's great. It's a great tool for sharing the gospel. If you need help figuring that out, I'll help you figure that out. Uh, but I mean, you struggle even thinking about sharing the gospel, thinking about inviting someone in here because you're like, why would I ever want to invite someone else into this stressed out mess that I'm in? God is a taskmaster. Why would anyone want to come and be his? I mean, I, I have to. But... I mean, think with me. You will commend what you cherish, right? You see a good movie, right? You tell people about it. You hear a new album that you're like, that's amazing. You tell people about it. You read a book that's impacted your life. You tell people about it because you love it, right? You're like, I just binge watched all of Stranger Things season two. You've got to do this too, right? Like we do that. We will commend what we cherish. There's nothing in you that wants to commend Jesus and what he's done. Commend the the gospel and the grace that you found in a community like this one. Is it really that good to you? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not that amazing. Maybe that grace, you can sing amazing grace, you just don't believe it. Maybe you're inoculated. Lastly, uh, if, no matter where you are with Jesus this morning, I need you to see something that this text pushes on us. Nineveh was notorious, right? I mean, as vile a sinner as you can imagine. Violent, socially unjust. Uh, they worshipped a goddess of sex and all that implies. Crazy wicked. And God shows them mercy. Jonah, religious, Cold, hating God and running from him. And God shows him mercy. They're both lost. And yes, I'm talking about a prophet who, if he's not fully lost, is on the path. Like he is exhibiting lostness. God's grace, not that good. I'm awesome. They stink. Judge them. Love me. Right? Not the gospel. Lost. Nineveh, lost. Both lost. Now, one looks notorious, the other looks clean and cold. Both are lost. And God shows both of them mercy. Right? Why do you think God asks Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? God is still pursuing him. Jonah doesn't want to have anything to do with God. God's pursuing him. So there is grace for you if your betrayal looks like the crazy wickedness of the Ninevites or it looks like the cold, hard religion of Jonah. Don't you see that in Jonah's case, it is his religion that's keeping him from God. The Ninevites repented on the off chance. Perhaps God will be merciful. Jonah has his hands too full of him to be able to receive anything from God. Don't let your religion keep you from Jesus. You cannot receive grace and mercy and blessing 
You can't receive anything from Jesus if your hands are full of you. But, seeing God as someone who pursues both the person who blatantly turns away and the person who turns away through their rule-keeping, to see that he pursues both of those people with the same grace, the same eagerness, that's unexpected. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we, as we hear this, we need to receive it, and we cannot receive it in ourselves. And so I ask that you would press these truths into our heart. And those things which are of you, let them go deep into us. And those things that are not, let them fall away. But do not let us leave here without grappling with and responding to your mercy. Father, do not let us be inoculated to your gospel. Save us. Save us from that. Whether we are, we've been Christians a long time or we're just trying to check this out, don't let us walk away from this place refusing your grace. On our own, we will. And so we look to you and ask that you would do this. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.